Our sermon text this morning is from Luke chapter 18, the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, You can find this on page 825 of the Black Pew Bible. If you do not have a Bible, you can find the Black Pew Bible in front of you, page 825. Uh, This summer, we're looking at the biblical doctrine of salvation. We're trying to think about uh, what it means to be saved according to the Bible, focusing on the main themes related to that, trying to each week give you a passage that clearly either states it or illustrates it. And so today we're going to turn to the topic of conversion and to this story that illustrates what it means to be converted. Uh, So far we've looked at mostly at the things that God does to save us. We looked at election, we looked at him sending his son into the world to die, we've looked at calling, we've looked at regeneration, being born again. Today we're going to start to look at some of the things that it looks like on our end. Conversion is something that we become by grace active in. And so let's hear God's word now and we'll talk a few moments about that. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God endures forever. Amen. When have you realized that you were going the wrong way? Has that ever happened to you before? 
Some of you are shaking your head no, but I see that grin on your face. That means yes. How far had you gotten when you realized you were going the wrong way? Uh, hopefully, you, you, try to, you try to realize as soon as you can, but there are times that have happened in my life where I got a good ways down the road, and only then did I realize I was on the wrong road, in the wrong direction. Well, think about this. This is an easy question. What is the only solution to that problem? There's only one solution if you're going the wrong way. What is it? Turn around. That's right. That's the only thing, literally, that you can do. You have to stop going in the wrong direction after you've realized that you are. You have to turn into the right direction, and you have to retrace your steps back to where you went wrong. And from there, you've got to keep going right. There is no other way to correct a person heading in the wrong direction than that. Well, the Bible talks about salvation in similar terms often. Uh, the Bible says, here's why we need to be saved. We, human beings, we are going the wrong way. And I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. The exact opposite way that God intended us to go when he made us in his image. We're going the opposite way. And y'all, we have been going that way for a while. We are deep in it. The only way that any of us can be saved from that condition is to stop going the wrong way, to turn right, retrace our steps, to back to where we started, and go as God directs us. Well, if you can understand that, you know what the Bible means by conversion. A conversion is a turning of the whole person. Turning us from sin, and which means basically life in our own way, without God, and turning towards life God's way, receiving his forgiveness and receiving his instruction. There are two parts to every conversion, two sides to it. And so if you look at your bulletin, you'll see there, we just want to this morning talk through these two sides to true conversion. And yes, you're looking at it right. This sermon only has two points. Sometimes I just like to prove to y'all that I can do more than a three-point sermon. Uh, you may discover, though, that my, my uh, conclusion sounds suspiciously like a third point. But uh, don't worry about that. It's just a conclusion. All right? Here's my two points today. Saving faith is illustrated by the blind beggar in chapter 18. And then secondly, repentance unto life is illustrated by Zacchaeus. Those are the two sides of true conversion. Let's look first of all at saving faith and the blind beggar. Uh, in verse 35 of chapter 18, if you'll look at that verse again, it tells us that Jesus was going near Jericho outside of the city and he saw a blind man sitting by the road begging do you see that word begging? Now, if I asked you how many in this room want to one day become a beggar, my guess is nobody would raise their hand. We all know that in the past, in Jesus' day, maybe more so than today, but even today, sometimes people are reduced to that condition. They have to beg to live because they have no other means to support themselves. Our hearts should have tremendous compassion for people in that condition. 
but nobody, or at least very few, I know there may be some exceptions, but very few people would actually willingly sign up to live by begging. Now think about why that is. Why don't we want to beg? I think the reason is simple. It's really, really humiliating. Is it not? Uh, begging is literally saying, it's, it's opening up a trembling, empty hand and saying to somebody else, fill my hands with what I need because I can't do it myself. For whatever reason, I'm unable to take care of my own life and so I'm just calling out for someone's mercy. Um, they don't have to help me. That, that's the definition of begging. They don't have to. I'm just simply throwing myself on the chance that they will have the compassion and mercy necessary to move towards me. And when I'm in that position, I feel greatly weak and greatly humbled and I would say even humiliated. Nobody would willingly choose to be a beggar. And I'm sure this man didn't either. In fact, it tells us that it, he didn't. That's why it wants to tell us he's blind. The reason why the man is begging is because he's blind. Now, back in Jesus' day, they did not have the social safety nets that we have today for people like this. Uh, there was no welfare. There was no food stamps. There was no Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, the, the American Disabilities Act had not been passed during Jesus' day. And so there was no system to care for people who were disabled. And so often, if that disabled person did not have a very wealthy family member, somebody in their family who had not just enough to live on but enough to share, this is what they had to do. They had to every day get up, stand on the side of the road, hold out the trembling hands, cry out, humble themselves, and depend on mercy. This had become, I'm sure, a habit for the blind man. But I want you to notice something. On this particular day, his daily habit becomes extraordinary because of the person who happens to be passing by him that day. Now remember, he's blind. He cannot see. When he hears the commotion, when he hears the crowd gathering as it describes it there in verse 36, he can't see who it is causing the ruckus. He can only hear the ruckus. And so he asks other people, who is here? Why is everybody crowding into Jericho? This is not usual for a Monday morning. And somebody calls out and responds, Jesus of Nazareth, none other than the healer, none other than the merciful one who's been traveling around the country, putting forth his power, turning people from blindness to sight and lameness to walking. This one is passing by today. And immediately, this beggar who knew how to beg for his living learns how to beg for his spiritual life. He learns how to beg at a whole new level. He's begging the Son of God for mercy. The man is displaying the definition of true saving faith. Saving faith does not highlight my own, weak, my own strength 
Saving faith highlights the strength of somebody else. It's the open, empty, trembling hand looking for it to be filled by another, by the other's mercy. Therefore, this man is a wonderful illustration of what every single believer is like at the heart of hearts. I cannot meet my own spiritual need. I'm going in the wrong direction. There's no way I can turn myself. There's no way I can fix my life. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, many theologians will tell you that faith has three different aspects to it. And I think this man shows us all three aspects. First of all, he knows something about Jesus. And to believe, you got to know. you got to understand at least the basic level of what the Bible says about Christ. Well, he does. He knows that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel. The second part of faith is you got to accept what you know. And so he does. He, he accepts it in his heart, what he knows in his head, which is why he says, son of David, have mercy. See, he, he accepts it as true enough to call out and ask for the mercy to be given. And then the third part of saving faith is personal trust. And notice how the man doesn't just say it once. He says it over and over and over again until Jesus hears him. Have mercy on me. You see, it's personal for this man. I need your mercy, and I'm going to keep calling out. People are embarrassed for me. That's why they're trying to shut him up. But I'm still going to keep yelling. Have you ever been embarrassed for somebody and you thought they should be embarrassed for themselves? Ever had that feeling? Why isn't she embarrassed right now? That's what the, apparently the disciples thought about this man. Why isn't he embarrassed? He's a grown man and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And yet that didn't stop him because he personally trusted that Jesus was the kind of person to hear a screech. If that screech was an expression of a heart of dependence, which it was. Now, Faith is weakness. And yet someone might say, well, hold on. Stan, the Bible is full of people who were strong in faith and they were heroes because they have faith. I think faith makes you strong. And I would say to you, yes, you're exactly right. Faith does eventually make you stronger. But listen, this is very important. Faith is the kind of thing that doesn't make you strong by pointing out your own innate strengths. It's quite the other way around. Faith is the one thing that makes a person strong by taking away their self-confidence and building in them the confidence in Christ, confidence in God and what he can do for us where we couldn't do it for ourselves. John uh, Patton in the 1800s was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He left Scotland to go there. He was the first missionary to those islands. If you don't know, the New Hebrides are in the South Pacific. And the reason why they were famous at the time is that people on the island practiced cannibalism. Like the real deal. They, they practiced cannibalism. That was world-renowned. No Christian missionary had ever gone there to share the gospel. John Patton signed up. Now you might say, hold on, that, that's strong faith right there. 
Well, listen to this story. When he got there, the first thing he did is he tried to understand their language. He didn't know it. He, he learned it so that he could translate the Bible into their language. Well, he found out their language did not have a word for faith. It's kind of hard to believe, but they had no word for, for faith in the Bible's sense. So he was searching for some way to describe it. One day, he went hunting with a, a group of men from the tribe, including the chief and the very important people. And they went out way away from their village and they found a deer and they killed the deer. They strapped the deer's legs together. They put a big wooden pole through the the gaps between their legs and they threw it on their shoulder and walked the deer all the way back to the village and it was a long way. They went over mountains and volcanoes and down mountains and around mountains and they finally made it. And when they got there, they threw the deer off onto the porch and the chief threw himself down on a chair, a lounge chair on the porch and he said, oh, finally I get to have some rest. And John Patton said, hold on, what word did you, did you just use? Say that word again. And he said, I get to have some rest. Yeah, rest, that word rest. That is how you're converted. That is the word. And, and actually, even to this day, in the Bible, in that language, the word faith is translated with that word. Just like the blind beggar. You see, faith is not you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's the man after a long haul finally quitting his efforts at self-salvation and depending on Jesus. It's the woman who has racked her brain trying to figure out how to make her life what she thinks it ought to be, only to quit trying and throw herself on Jesus so that he can make her life what God wants it to be. Now, I think that's, that's encouraging. Because what that means is that literally anybody, anybody, if God works in their heart, anybody can believe. If you can beg, you can believe in Jesus. Here's the hitch. How comfortable are you with thinking of yourself as a beggar? Now that's where the problem is. And yet every day, if you're a Christian, you know this, every day part of your Christian growth is learning more and more how to remind yourself, I'm a beggar before the merciful Savior and he has supplied my needs richly by grace. And so Jesus said to the blind man in verse 41, not only do you get your eyesight, but your faith has made you completely well. And, and that word for well is the word salvation. If you don't know it, in, in Greek, that's the same word, salvation. Your faith has saved you. Simply because you begged, you were converted and saved and have become my own dear child. Amen? That's the first thing. Let's look at the second. Repentance unto life. Now, this is the second side of conversion. Not only do we need to believe in Jesus, but we need to turn from our sins. And Zacchaeus is a great illustration. Now, if you were trying to, to make up a story about someone who was exactly opposite of the blind beggar, you couldn't do better than telling the story about Zacchaeus. 
polar opposite. Uh, he is no beggar, right? I mean, he, he is, first of all, he's in the city of Jericho. He's not outside the city walls like the blind beggar. He's inside the, 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 where the important people. He's rich, it tells us in verse 1. He's rich because he's the chief tax collector, meaning uh, he helps collect the taxes for the Roman Empire. It's well known that those tax collectors in Jesus' day were usually thieves who would steal and take more money than they should have, and they would keep it themselves. That's probably why he got rich. So though he wasn't very well liked, he was very greatly feared. He was a man of power and a man of status. And yet, he has this in common with the blind beggar. One thing in common. Just like him, he wants to see Jesus. Did you see that? Verse 3. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But, just like the blind beggar, something about himself makes it impossible for him to see Jesus. What's wrong with Zacchaeus? He's short. Kids, he is a wee little man, the song says. You know that song, kids, or is that too old for y'all? I used to sing it when I was a kid. A wee little man was he, Zacchaeus. So he climbed up in the sycamore tree. He was short, tiny. Uh, This was in a time where most everybody was shorter than they are today. So... Uh, One scholar that I read said that it must have been that he was below five foot tall to be called short. That's a short dude, to be below five foot tall. Very, very small. He can't look over the crowd to see Jesus passing by. He probably can't ask for people to move out of the way because nobody likes him. He's the tax collector. And so he runs and finds a tree and climbs as high as he can climb in the sycamore tree so that he can look at Jesus when he comes by. But I want you to notice, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 5. Jesus, when he gets to the tree, looks up and says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and get down from there. Come down from that tree. Today, I must stay at your house. I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. We're going to eat. We're going to talk. I may stay all night. I am going to be your guest tonight. I'm inviting myself over to your house and to your table. Come down from the tree. Everybody else grumbles. Why would Jesus be so kind to such a terrible person? That guy stole my life savings in the last tax collection. And Jesus wants to go have a party with him? It says they all grumbled. But Jesus, in verse 10, explains what he's doing. There's a method to his madness. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When he looks up in that tree, he sees not just a sinner, he sees a lost sinner. Someone who's been going in the wrong direction. And yet, God has obviously awakened in Zacchaeus' heart a a desire to move in a different direction because he's desperate to see Jesus. 
so desperate, he's willing to climb a tree and embarrass himself. I mean, when's the last time you saw a grown man climb a tree? It could be embarrassing. You could, you could imagine. Jesus sees in this man a lost sinner who is ready to come home. And so he says to him, get down from the tree. Zacchaeus, you do not have to climb to get to me. I'm coming to you. You don't have to climb trees. I come and seek and save the lost. And I invite and you come and we have a meal together and you are accepted by God although your sins are as red as scarlet. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It says Zacchaeus came down immediately. You know, he climbed, he, he was like, yes, sir, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I climbed the tree. He hurried down and it says he received Jesus joyfully. Do you see that word joyful? That is a key to understanding repentance. Because it's after Jesus meets him, shows him mercy, makes him joyful, that he says in front of everybody, yes, I'm that sinner they're talking about, but look, Lord, today I'm going to give away half my possessions to the poor, and I'm going to pay back those that I've stolen from four times. I'm repenting today. I'm, I'm turning my life around today. Lord, not to earn your grace. You've, you've already showed me grace. That's why my heart's full of joy right now. That's why I'm rushing down the tree to run to my house to make it ready for you to eat with me because you are a merciful God. But because you are merciful, I am joyful. Therefore, I am letting go of what kills me that I might embrace what gives me life. Repentance, like faith, involves a few elements and he's got them all. It involves knowing and understanding, yes, I am a sinner and I need salvation. It involves really having a sense of how bad sin is and actually it, it involves hating my sin and then it involves doing something about it, literally turning from it to embrace the new way of life that God wants me to live. He's got all of it. And Jesus drew it out of him, not by yelling at him and not merely by making him afraid, but by showing him uncommon mercy. That's the motivation. Now, fear's got a place. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we should fear the Lord and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, don't get me wrong. But fear alone can't produce true repentance. Think about this. Uh, do y'all have this problem that I have at home where it seems like every other week raccoons get into my trash can and go through my trash and have like a fraternity party at night and throw the trash everywhere? I have this problem and I'm trying to get them away. It's, a bad, it's bad, especially in the summer, I feel. 
Well, there are times where I hear them out there and I'll run out and I'll catch them in the act and scare them off. And it's very effective. Raccoons are very afraid of people and so they're, they're immediately gone. But I have never thought, well, there it is. I scared him away. He stopped eating the trash. He will never come back again. I've cured him. Sometimes people think they've repented when they've really just been scared. And what hasn't happened is God hasn't reached out to touch with his kindness that part of you that loves sin to make you hate it. To see it as a trash can full of grossness that you want to cast away and replace with his treasures. When Zacchaeus repented, he didn't have a frown on his face. He rejoiced. And so every Christian. To be converted, y'all, is not Jesus calling on you and saying, hey, stop the 10 most fun things in your life and take up the 10 things you hate the most and follow me. Isn't that the way we think about Jesus sometimes? Like, yeah, he's here to cramp my style, but you know, I don't want to go to hell, so I guess I'll give in and he'll cramp my style so that I go to heaven. That isn't the way it is. We've completely misunderstood the Bible and the gospel if that's what we think. This, this is Jesus saying, leave your death and come to life. And no, you do not have to climb a tree. You do not have to climb a ladder. You do not have to jump through hoops to get to me. You don't have to prove yourself first to get to me. I come to you. But when I come to you, oh, don't let the death hold you back. Cast it off and run to me. Don't you see how these two men, the blind beggar, Zacchaeus, are beautiful illustrations of conversion? They're so different, and yet together they show us what it looks like when every person who becomes a Christian makes that leap, makes that step. And so let me conclude this morning. This is the conclusion that you might feel like as a mini point, but I really want to drive the point home. Because I don't believe that when talking about this topic that I, as the, your pastor, should assume that everybody in this room is converted. I, I don't assume that. Uh, now, I'm not saying I know who you are, and if I look at you during this conclusion, it doesn't mean I think you're not converted, right? So I'm going to try to evenly distribute my eyes right now. But here's what I want to say. These stories show you, you must be converted to be saved. You are on your own going in the wrong direction. You must turn. You must retrace your steps. And you must follow Jesus. Now the good thing about these stories is they help us. Whether we feel like we're near to God or far away. If you feel like you're the worst sinner in the room or if you feel like you're the least sinner in the room, you're probably not right either way. But if that's the way you feel, neither of them are a bar from you coming to Jesus Christ today. Neither of them. This story tells us 
You can be a sinner as dark as they come. Zacchaeus was one of them, and Jesus dined with him that very day. As soon as he repented, he was his. He was in. You may feel like you're a great person, and everybody looks up to you or pities you like the blind beggar. Oh, what a saintly man sitting there every day just depending on people's mercy, trusting in God every day to provide for him. That may be you. He still needed to be converted. And to call out not just for his bread, but for his very life. Not just for his sight, but for his life. I'm talking to you this morning, even if you're young or if you're old. Kids, young people, adults, older adults, doesn't matter what category you're in, it is never too young or early or too late to be converted. What these two men had in common was not the stage of life they were in. It was, that was the day Jesus passed by. Let me tell you, in the preaching of the word this morning, Jesus Christ is passing by. Today is an opportunity for you to call out in faith and to, con- to turn from your sin and your way of life to embrace him. You can do that if you're small. You can do that if you're old. This morning, it doesn't matter if you're weak or if you're strong. Remember, faith and repentance is not about your strength. You may have a, you may have a faith that's barely faith. And yet, as one writer says, even a weak faith lays hold of a strong Christ. Think of the blind beggar. The weakness of your faith this morning is no barrier. Come to Jesus. He passes you by today. He is calling on you to accept his salvation and his way of life. And he's here today willing to dine with you and give to you all the blessings that come along with it. Now, let me say one more word to those who have been converted already, maybe years ago. Listen, it is a bad idea that conversion was for one day of your life. I actually don't know where we came up with that idea that if you walk down an aisle one time, that's the only time you ever need to be converted. Now, I'll grant you, conversion happens, it starts at a particular moment. It does. You have to begin it, which is what I was just talking about. But the Bible makes it clear. Once you repent and believe, every day of your life now should be a life of repentance and belief. That means every time you see your sin, that's another chance to put a smile on your face and to hear Jesus calling you down out of the tree of your self-righteousness and to follow him in repenting from what you've done and from how you've thought and how you've felt. Every day is a new chance for you to see the sufficiency of Jesus and to embrace that supply for your needs. Faith. It's like the Christian life is a one-two step. Left, right, left, right. And it's Believe, repent, believe, repent, believe, repent. You never stop doing it till you get to heaven. And so that means it always looks like remembering at the end of the day, we have but trembling, empty hands to offer. He fills them. Our sins aren't doing us any good anyway. 
we can let them go yet one more time and receive his welcome. Amen?